Well, good morning. What an honor it is to come and be able to open up God's Word with you. I got to tell you, throughout the week as I prepare, study, review, um, I'm always very excited about the things that God pours into me that I have the privilege to try to pour out here. And uh, I think that's one of the, the best things about uh, the job I have is I, I get to be the messenger. The title of our message today is Impact, Affecting Our World for Christ. It is part two of what we began last week. If you missed that, um, I'll just encourage you to go back and watch that either on Facebook or on YouTube to kind of catch up because I'm not going to have time to review everything. But basically what I'm going to remind you of is that we are commanded to be persuasive for the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.11, Paul talks about those of us who know what it is to fear God seek to persuade others. And we've been talking about how that works. We live in an antagonistic culture these days, and the truth of the scripture is not universally accepted. In many places, it is not even tolerated. Is it possible to affect a world that starts off from the position of dislike, distrust toward you. We've already seen, yes, that is, because it's not the first time that it has happened. How then? How does God enable us to break through the barriers that are already up from our culture? And one of the ways that we have seen in our story is that he uses the consequences of bad choices. You see, we live in a culture today in where everybody is pretty much doing whatever they think is the right thing to do. We also live in a culture today that believes that the majority makes right. If everybody agrees with me, I must be right. Now, history teaches us that that's foolishness. It also teaches us that when everybody starts doing what they think is right, or what they want to do is another way of saying that, that no matter how many people agree with them, there are consequences to that. Because God has created the world with certain laws, and he doesn't care whether you like them or not, they are inviolate. They, they, if you break those laws, there are consequences. If you make bad choices, there are consequences. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, to people in general, but in the end it leads to death. So when everybody's out doing what they think is quote-unquote right, and it's particular when it's in rebellion to what God's Word says, there are always consequences to that. And when there are consequences to rebellion, that brings sadness Anxiety, fear, harm. And while none of those things are good things, and none of those things are what we want for other people, they do present an opportunity. When the whole culture is going its own way and running away from God and rebelling against Him, there are consequences to that. And when those consequences come, that is an opportunity for those of us who know what it is to fear the Lord to present an alternative, to present another way of thinking. 
maybe something that's been dismissed before. And that's exactly what happened with the feature of our story, Paul the Apostle. It all started back when Paul uh, was in Europe sharing the gospel primarily with non-Jews. And he was thankful to do that. That was really his calling. But his heart was for his own people. It broke his heart that the whole world was accepting Christ and his own people to whom Christ was sent had rejected him. And so he decided he wanted to go home and to take one last crack at trying to share the good news with his countrymen. And even though he had been warned and told that if you do that, the only thing that's going to happen is there's going to be trouble. They're not going to listen to what you have to say. They're not going to receive it. They're going to attack you. And yet Paul, without regard for his own personal safety, goes anyway. And when he does, just as had been predicted by many people and the Holy Spirit himself, Paul is attacked and nearly killed by a mob. He is rescued by a local of irony of ironies, a Roman garrison. And he is taken into custody, eventually transferred to the capital city of Judea, which was Caesarea. And for the next two years, he's imprisoned and he stands trial on a series of occasions in which each of the Roman governors of the area hear Paul's case, hear the accusations against him, know that he's innocent, at least for many charges that would involve Rome, and yet because those leaders know that they'll get in trouble if they release Paul, they keep him imprisoned. Finally, Paul realizes that if he doesn't take matters into his own hands, he very likely is going to die there. So he exercises his right as a Roman citizen to appeal directly to Caesar, and he is extradited to Italy. He's put in the charge of a Roman centurion by the name of Julius, who then books passage for Paul and some other prisoners, and they begin to make their way toward Italy. They first go north up the Mediterranean coast and eventually start to cut across. They ultimately come with great difficulty to the island of Cyprus, excuse me, not Cyprus, <laughs> remember I told you last week about my mistakes, Crete, they come to the island of Crete, and because it was winter, they got there with great difficulty, and Paul warns them when they're on Crete that if they continue to try to move further west toward Italy, that they're going to have disaster. But they don't listen to Paul. The, the Roman centurion doesn't listen to Paul. He listens instead to the captain of the ship and the owner of the ship. And if you want to know why, I explained that last week, and you can go back and listen to that message. But essentially, they continue on in their journey, and when they do, they are caught up in a storm just as Paul had warned them about. And the storm drags them out to sea into open water, uh, they are deep in the midst of the Mediterranean, and everything they try to do to either slow down or to get to safety fails. And eventually things get so bad, and the storm rages for so long that it just wears everybody down, and they lose hope. The whole ship loses hope and is in despair. They're just sort of floating like a cork on the ocean waiting to die. 
Eventually, Paul addresses everyone on board, and he reassures them and tells them, I tried to warn you. It would have been better if you would have listened to me. But nevertheless, my God visited me, and he told me, you don't need to be afraid, that he's going to make sure that I get to Rome, which means you're all going to get where you need to go to. Nobody's going to die. And he encourages them, but the storm continues. And as it continues, eventually, the crew tries to abandon ship, and Paul stops that because he knows that if they leave, everybody on board is going to die. And they finally come to a place where they realize they're coming up on land, but that isn't necessarily a good thing. They don't know what they're coming up on. They don't know where it is because they've been out to sea and in a storm that was so dark and so foreboding, they couldn't even see the stars at night to navigate. And they're afraid. And then Paul addresses them. And he tells them, you don't need to be afraid. What you really need to do is to eat because you're physically depleted. And he tells them that they're going to need their strength. And he encourages them. And he sets the example for them by eating himself. And a result of, as a result of his example, they begin to eat. And things begin to look up. Which brings us to where we left off last week. Acts chapter 27. And we're going to start at verse 36 and then move on to 37. It says, then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Verse 37, this is Luke speaking parenthetically. He says, we were in all 276 persons in the ship. That is a big ship. The entire ship's complement was 276 persons. This is an extraordinarily large ship for this time. It's so big, in fact, this number is so big that for a long time there were historians who, again, attacked the Scripture and said, well, again, you see that the Bible isn't reliable because there were no ships that could have accommodated 276 people. That was until ancient writings were discovered, which document ships back then, especially grain carriers, who, which were some of the largest vessels of the day, that... Uh, it even had the, the plans for these vessels in these writings. It described them as being 180 feet long, 45 feet wide, 40 feet deep, and with a load capacity of, of over 1,000 tons. And so, therefore, these vessels were easily capable of carrying this many people. And this is a big ship. This, this would be a small cruise liner even today. And Luke says there were 276 people on board, which means that there at some point had to have been a head count, probably before the voyage began, and then afterwards as well. And when I think about that, I think about how many people God was allowing Paul to affect. The 276 people on this ship were going to have an encounter. Matter of fact, they were in the middle of it right here. They were going to have an encounter that they were never going to forget. It wasn't going to end with this story either. When they finally do get to land, there's even going to be more miraculous stuff going on. I have no doubt that by the time these 276 people got to Rome, they all had stories to tell. 
And I would suspect some of them were actually brought to faith by what Paul shared. Now, not all of them, but I guarantee you this, every one of them would have gotten home and would have said, you won't believe what happened on my way here, which shows you how God can use each and every one of us. You never know what situation God's going to put you in that's going to provide for you opportunity to influence and infect a bunch of people. And oftentimes, it's going to come disguised as a storm. Verse 38. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So now Paul has addressed everyone on board. He's told them they needed to eat. He's told them why. He's modeled it for them. Luke mentions that there were 276 people indicating they all ate something. And then he says as soon as they were done eating, they got rid of the rest of the grain, which would have taken some time because most of this grain would have been carried in the hold of the ship which meant that the crew and other people on board would have had to work in coordination with one another to bring all this stuff up and then to dump it overboard. It would have taken a while. Why were they throwing the grain over? To lighten the ship. Why were they trying to lighten the ship? Because they were coming up on land, and they were being blown toward land by this storm. They had no control over the ship. Everything they had tried, anchors, sails, rudders, Nothing had worked. They were just being whisked along by this typhoon. And finally, they they take soundings and they discover they're coming up on land. They don't know where it is or what it is, but they know that presents, you would think it would present a joy, but it actually presents just as much danger because we don't know what kind of land we're coming up on. But usually all land goes from when you're in the middle of the ocean where it's deep, as you start to come up on land, The the bottom of the ocean comes up a little closer to the ship, and you don't know what it's made out of. And many ships, before they can get to the safety of land, are just ripped apart by what's hidden beneath the waves. And so it's a common practice, at least it was back then, of ships to to lighten their draft, to, to get rid of weight so the ship floats up higher and is less vulnerable to what's hidden beneath the surface. And keep in mind, they are throwing the, away the very reason this ship sailed in the first place. It was an Egyptian grain carrier. They're getting rid of the grain. That's how desperate they were. They were no longer worried about making a profit. They're only worried about staying alive. And so as soon as they've had a chance to eat, they just start dumping all the grain. Verse 39 Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. I want you to come back. First line here in verse 39. When it was day. What you need to know is, all of the events that I've been describing for you, both last week and this week, all took place during the night. The 14th night. 14 days without any food, 14 days without any stars, 14 days without any sleep, 14 days under incredible duress, 14 days that had, been, that had served to break everyone on board. 
these experienced sailors who had been in these waters before were broken. They're trying to abandon ship. Roman soldiers who were the toughest of the tough had no answers. They were just as afraid. The passengers were probably terrified. One guy kept his cool, Paul the Apostle. And his speech and his example of eating the bread and everything that's been going on, the soundings that they took to figure out they were coming up on land, all took place in the night, which also lends itself as to why they couldn't recognize where they were heading up toward. You can't see because it's night. The only lights would have been the lights that were on board the ship itself. They didn't have spotlights. They would have had lanterns, perhaps. Even dumping the grain. They're dumping it at night. All this is happening under the cover of of darkness. You know, the one thing that can make any situation in your life worse is darkness. Have you ever noticed how things always seem worse at night than they do the next day? Ever had a sleepless night and then the next day you wake up and for some reason just the sun rising and being able to see just makes things, things seem a little bit better? That's the case here. It says that when the day came, suddenly they could recognize that there was land coming, and a very particular kind of land. We're told that it had a beach. Now, even though they don't recognize the land, they know this. Their ship has been weakened by this storm. They've already had to lash it. They've already had to tie ropes all the way around the bottom of it and then secure them across the, the deck of the ship to try to just keep it from falling apart. And this is a big ship. That's how bad the storm was. So they know the ship is already weakened and compromised, and they know that they're heading toward land, and they're not sure whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but they start to make their course toward the land because it's their only hope. They know that if they stay out on open water, they're going to die for sure. So they have to risk it. And then they noticed a bay, and they noticed a beach. Now, beach is good news. Beaches, by and large, are made out of sand. Beaches are inviting. That's why we go down, I'm told anyway, I'm new here, I don't know this for sure, but I'm told that when you vacation here in Texas, you go down to the Gulf, and you find yourself a nice sandy beach down there. That's what we used to do back in California. You want a sandy beach. A sandy beach was good news for these guys. You know why? Because by and large, whatever the beach is made of, whatever the land that you're approaching is made of, that's what the approach is made of as well. That's why if you saw an island and you saw it was surrounded by reefs or by jagged, rocky cliffs, you would be very careful as you approached it because that probably means that submerged in the water approaching it is that same kind of material. So that when they saw a sandy beach, they all perked up. And that's what, by the way, that's why they decide that they're going to run the ship aground. You don't run a ship toward a coral reef or to a, a, a jagged rocky cliff, but when you see a sandy beach, you think, yep, we've got a chance here. And the bay that they noticed, 
Because we find out later on that this piece of land that they discover is actually an island. It's the island of Malta. It exists to this day. It's about 100 miles south of Sicily. Now, those of you who don't know your geography, which includes me, um, if you know Italy, if you remember your, your, you know, when you were in elementary school, Italy, the, the nation, is shaped like a boot, right? That's Italy. And at the toe of the boot is an island there. And that island is Sicily. So this island of Malta was about 100 miles um, south of that, which shows you how far off they had been blown out to sea. They had started at Crete and had been blown all the way out into the middle of the ocean. So they're very excited to see this island. And there is, in fact, a bay at this island because it's actually more than one island. Malta is the main island, if you call it that. And then there's another little island at the top there that's called Salmonet. And in between there, the ocean is channeled through. As a matter of fact, today, that little channel is called St. Paul's Bay because of this story. And that beach was good, good news. So verse 40, So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. Okay, so remember how they had been throwing anchors off as fast as they could, trying to slow down? The one thing that you don't want when you're, in the, when you're in the open sea, and especially at night, especially under cloud cover where you can't navigate, where you can't see too far ahead of you, sort of reminds me of where I'm from. One of the things that happened in winter was fog. We have this thing called Thule fog, and, and you can't see sometimes 10 feet in front of your vehicle. And that was what conditions were like here. They were, they were covered in this stormy cloud. They're getting poured on. And it's dark, and they can't see anything, and they're being pushed along at speed. So they're doing everything they can to try to slow down. We're told that they had already struck the foresail, which meant they had taken down every little sail that might catch wind and push them even faster. We're told that they had dropped every anchor they could. They were dropping anchors from the rear. They were dropping anchors from the front. That was the excuse that the sailors used to try to sneak off in the skip. Well, we're going to check on the anchors in the front of the ship. They were trying to slow down every way they could, and this storm was so violent and so strong, none of their anchors were slowing them down. And these things were made out of either stone or iron or lead, and they weren't working at all. Well, now they've decided that they don't want to slow down anymore. Now they want to get to this island as fast as they can, I suspect because their ship was beginning to become unseaworthy. So now they want to get to the island as fast as they can. So they um, cast off the anchors. They loosened the ropes that tied the rudders, we're told. Apparently, the stern rudders would have been lifted up at some point. So also, there's less obstruction, less things that can be caught on shoals or rocks. And so now they let the rudders down. Why? Because now they need to be able to steer. Now they want to point the ship in a certain direction. And they hoisted the foresail. They lifted the sail up in order to catch the wind because now everything they haven't wanted before, speed, moving along, they didn't want that stuff before, now they do. 
Now they want to make their way toward this island as fast as they can, and so they make for the beach. But, unfortunately, I think they were hoping to beach this craft close enough to the shore to where the people could just walk. It wouldn't have been so deep that they could have walked or at least waited to get to shore. They, they didn't care about what happened to the ship after that, but they wanted to try to get close enough to shore that they could at least have a, have a fighting chance to get there without much trouble. And you have to understand that back then, not too many people knew how to swim. So getting as close to the shore as possible meant that most, more people more than likely could survive. So they make for the beach, but first, verse 41... But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. Okay, so now, as they were making their way toward shore, probably starting to get excited, we're almost there, we're almost there, hang on. And all of a sudden, they come to a sudden stop because the bottom came up suddenly. Now, the reef that they struck, in Greek, the word is dithalesos, and it doesn't really refer to like, I don't think it was a coral reef or a stony reef because if it had been, all it would have done would have been tore the bottom of the ship open and it would have sunk like a rock. Instead, what we're told is, is that it hit the reef and then stuck, which makes sense if it were made out of sand. The front would wedge and that would leave the back exposed, probably even protruding up a little bit. And we know today that on the island of Malta, if you actually proceed out from the ocean, it is sandy. It's actually loamy, which means it's, it's sand kind of mixed with sticky clay. And so the ship just got stuck in this material, which then presented a new problem. Because the front of the ship can't move, but the storm... And the channeled water in this bay is continuing to push and pound against the back of the ship as it's wedged. And so what it's literally doing, it's hammering the ship from behind and beginning to break it apart. But there's still a bit of a distance from shore. Today, oceanographers off the island of Malta have figured out that it's, at least today, if it were you know, the same setup, they're probably about 100 yards from the shore. That's the length of a football field. Now, for some of you, navigating 100 yards of water might not be a problem. You could probably swim 100 yards. I don't know. I'm in my 60s. I don't know if I could make 100 yards or not. Uh, it might be a flip of the coin. But you also have to remember that this was stormy water. This was turbulent water, rushing water. And they are 100 yards from shore. They can see it, but they're being pounded by the surf. Just getting off the ship would have been precarious. We know today that in St. Paul's Bay, in this area where this happened, under stormy conditions, the water becomes violent, turbulent. It's easy to just get pulled under by undertoes and to drown. It would take a strong swimmer to make it from a ship 100 yards out under stormy conditions to the beach. So verse 42, and here's an interesting line. It says, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. What? <laughs> Wait a minute, we're all, we're all in a fight for our life. And now because the ship has run aground, you're, you're going to kill all the prisoners? Why? Why? 
Roman law. The Romans had a very plain and simple law when it came to soldiers and prisoners. If you lose a prisoner in your custody, you die. No questions asked, no trial, you're executed. So now, think about these Roman soldiers. They have, we're not told how many prisoners were with them, but there were multiple. We're not told how big this imperial guard was, but probably not huge. It may have been a ratio of one to one. There may have been more prisoners than there were guards. I mean, the Romans were pretty confident about their ability. They may have thought, hey, a ratio of one to three is still our advantage because we're Romans. Whatever the case was, as soon as it became obvious that the Romans weren't going to be able to exercise direct custody of these prisoners, they decided, I'm not going to take any chances. I'm sorry you seem like a nice guy, but you've got to be put down. Because once we're all in the water, anything could happen, and I'm not going to risk it. So all of the soldiers were pretty much unanimous that, hey, we're going to put these guys to death, which means Paul the Apostle was about to be put to death. Isn't that interesting? The one guy who had been the most responsible for them all being saved, including these soldiers, was Paul. And now, because he's a prisoner, and because these soldiers don't want to run any risk, he's now about to be executed. What's God going to do? Verse 43, but the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land. Isn't this fascinating? God protects Paul. Why? Because he told Paul, you're not going to die. Not just that, but nobody on this ship is going to die. You're going to go to Rome and you're going to speak on my behalf just like I told you years before. So you're going to be fine. But the soldiers want to execute him. What does God do? He changes the heart of their leader, the centurion, the one in command. And why did he change his heart? Because of the influence that Paul had been wielding ever since he met him. From day one, when this centurion, and, and trust me when I tell you that Roman centurions were hard men. They had to exercise command over hard men, tough soldiers. So to be a centurion, you weren't a softy, in touch with your feelings, your inner child kind of person. You were a hardcore grunt. You were used to giving commands. You were used to having those commands followed. Sentiment didn't play into it if you were a Roman centurion. And yet, because he has become so impressed with this Paul the Apostle, because he has probably begun to ask himself, how is it that you're a prisoner? You've got more sense and more wisdom than most of the people who are over me in our own government and in our own military. How is it that you're imprisoned? And he so respected him. He was so influenced by him that he decides that he's got to save Paul and he doesn't care if it means having to A, save every other prisoner or B, put his own men's lives in danger or C, even his own life. If they killed Roman guards who lost a prisoner, what do you think they did to centurions? And yet he's willing to run all of that risk 
because of how impressed he has become with Paul. And so he decides that he's got to save Paul. There's a lot of application in that. One of the things you got to realize is, is, isn't it interesting that in God saving Paul, everybody around him benefited? Think about that. Because God was so desirous of using Paul, and because God was so pleased in the way Paul was conducting himself, everywhere Paul goes, there's blessing of those around him. These people are having their lives saved. In all circumstances, under normal situations, the people on this ship die. The ending of the story is the ship broke up, they all drowned, next chapter. The only reason they get preserved is because God decides to put his hand on Paul. And when he puts his hand on Paul, everybody around him gets blessed. Beloved, that's another form of influence. God's blessing on our life pours out to other people. Isn't that amazing? And so, what Julia says is, everybody on board here that can swim, you jump overboard and you go to shore first. Now, who would that have included? Probably most of the crew, because sailors, because they knew they were going to be out on open water, they would teach themselves how to swim or have someone show them how to swim just because it was practical. But the main people that knew how to swim on this ship, you know who they were? The Roman soldiers. You know why? Because every Roman soldier had a hero. His hero was Julius Caesar, generally acknowledged as the greatest Roman king ever. And there's a story that every young Roman boy would be told about Julius Caesar. One time, Julius Caesar was at war as a soldier, and he was a part of the Roman navy. And they were battling in Alexandria, Egypt, in the bay outside the city. And the Romans were being defeated. And some that were on board ships that were burning and about to sink had to jump overboard and get to safety. And Julius Caesar was one of them. And his life was spared because he swam a great distance until he could finally get to a place where there were friendlies. And that story was told as folklore to every young Roman boy by his parents before they would be thrown into the water to learn how to swim. You want to be like Julius Caesar? You have to learn how to swim. Every Roman soldier just about was a proficient swimmer. So what Julius is doing here is he's calming his men down and ensuring the security of these prisoners by saying, listen, we're the strongest swimmers here. So you guys overboard and get to shore, and when the prisoners come, you take them back into custody. So he had a plan. Verse 44, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship, and so it was that all were brought safely to land. The remaining people were probably passengers, perhaps some crew, probably mostly prisoners who didn't know how to swim. And they're told to just grab hold of some floating debris and take that to shore. What does that tell you? There wasn't much left of the ship by now. All that was left was just flotsam. And they were hanging on to it. It wouldn't serve as a ship anymore, but at least it might get you to safety. 
It's also very likely that these prisoners had to have their chains released because otherwise they would have sank like stones. And so Julius allows them to get to shore, and it says all were brought safely to land. Why is that important? Because that's what God had said was going to happen. He had said nobody on board was going to die. Guess what? Nobody on board died. Now let's talk about impact. How did Paul affect his world? How can we affect ours? I think there's three things we can learn from the story that will be useful for you and I and how we affect a culture that starts off antagonistic toward us and the book we live our lives by. The first is poise. Poise. Paul demonstrated poise when things were difficult. When everybody else is freaking out, when everybody else is calling out to his God, when everybody else is in despair, Paul stands up and he says, not one hair is going to perish from the head of any of you, verse 34. One of the most winsome things that you and I can demonstrate when we're out in a lost world, especially when people are reaping the consequences of their poor choices or just life gets difficult and hard for no reason, no, no cause of their own, is that you and I can be agents of the hope of God which generates confidence. We can demonstrate poise because of the hope that we have in our Lord through His Word. And that we can also share with others who are going to ask us why. Remember what Peter said? Always be ready to present a defense for the gospel with gentleness and reverence. I think it's 1 Peter 3.15. That's what poise is. Poise is living your life in such a way so that you're not swept away like a cork on the ocean. Because you have an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, it says in Hebrews. And that hope is the promise of God. And that promise, that truth, is the message that we can present to the world when they'll be most ready to hear it. Psalm 27, 13, David wrote, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You know when he wrote that? He wrote that in the middle of the Judean wilderness when he was being hunted by the most powerful man in the area, King Saul. King Saul was hunting David with every resource he had. And as king, he had a lot of resources. He also had spies, even in David's own tribal land, who were hunting him, trying to find him so that they could turn him in for a reward. And when David is being hunted, and it looks like he's going to die, he says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord. Where? In heaven after Saul kills me? No. In the land of the living. We can demonstrate that same poise because of what God has promised us. The second thing that we can do is demonstrate a pattern, an example, that we don't just say one thing and live another. How we live has to affirm what we say. If we say that we trust God, if we say that we love God, if we say that God is real, if we say that God rescues those who call out to Him, then we can't be running around like Chicken Little every time some little stress comes in our life. We have to learn to say, hey, it's time to eat some bread. We have to learn to say, God is with us and He is a rescuer. 
We, we have to conduct ourselves by what it says in the book. If we, if we say that you know, God transforms lives and then our lives aren't transformed, then there's a conflict there. And we're not going to have any influence other than a negative influence. And by the way, that's the other thing. You're always influencing somebody in some way. The only question is how. God wants us to be a positive influence. Verse 35, Paul gave thanks to God, acknowledged that it was God who was going to rescue them, and then in the presence of all, and then he broke it and began to eat. He had instruction, and then he had integrity. That's why Paul wrote in Philippians 3.17, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eye on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Okay, so poise, and then pattern, and then lastly, persuasion. We have to be seeking to be persuasive. Now, not ramming things down people's throats, getting in people's faces all the time. The Bible tells us to live, you know, quiet lives. Now, there's times you've got to stand up and you've got to make noise, but most of the time, the best and most effective influence we're going to wield as we're, is just as we're living our everyday lives. There's a difference between how those who trust in God and believe in His promise are going to live and those who don't. And that difference will be persuasive. Paul was persuasive. Verse 36, he managed to get everybody on that ship that thought they were going to die. He got them to eat. He persuaded them that they weren't going to die based on nothing more than God's promise. He got them to act on what God had said. That is influence. Daniel 12, 3 says, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You and I are called to be salt, right? Preservative, flavoring. We're called to be light in darkness. And when we do, God will do amazing things. One last story. It's a Texas story, so you're going to like it. It's about one of my favorite guys, uh, Howard Hendricks. Some of you may know who he is. Most of you probably don't. Uh, Howard's gone now, but for years he was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. And Howard was a great speaker, and uh, he influenced some of the most amazing men of God uh, ever. Uh, he's the guy that mentored uh, Chuck Swindoll. Maybe you've heard of him. Um, he mentored Tony Evans, Chip Ingram, David Jeremiah, many, many others. And Howard, I don't know if you've ever heard some of his uh, messages. Um, he's a real down-to-earth, kind of an East Coast guy, a little bit out of place here in Texas, but, but he was loved. He was a great teacher. Uh, he was the professor of Bible exposition and hermeneutics, and he was also um, the chaplain of the Dallas Cowboys, for a long time, from 1976 to 1984. Well, one day, Howard was uh, teaching a class, and he gave an illustration about something that had happened to him when he was a very young pastor. Here's what he said. Years ago, while still a student at Dallas, I was invited by the friend of a friend to come hone my preaching skills at a tiny church out in West Texas. Hey, West Texas, represent. <laughs> Upon arrival... I took the pulpit and was greeted by an enthusiastic crowd teeming with eager listeners. Actually, I think there were about 17 people there. 
and most of them looked sleepy right from the get-go. Nevertheless, I preached with all the skill and fervor I could muster and felt confident the Lord would use my lofty words to transform multiple lives. Imagine my surprise then when the only person to even speak a word to me afterward was a tall man in western wear and a Stetson cattleman's hat who said the following, you know, you're all wrong about what you just said. Feeling a bit defensive, but trying not to appear that way, I replied, all right, well, I've been known to make the odd mistake from time to time. Can you be more specific? Yeah. It was during your sermon when you claimed that a person can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Well, that ain't true. I've done it many, many times. In fact, it's real easy. Okay, I thought to myself, now I'm intrigued. So how does one go about leading a horse to water and getting them to take a drink? Without missing a beat, the old cowboy said, you just feed them salt. I think that's maybe at the core of how influence works, dear ones. If we're really being the salt of the earth that we're commanded to be, then the one effect is that it's going to create thirst in other people. No matter how antagonistic they may start out, sooner or later, God will cause them to want to take a drink. Let's start conducting ourselves in such a way that that's what's going on. Father, I thank you for your word, which is truth. I thank you for your beloved who were so attentive this morning. I pray that you spoke something into their heart, Lord. I'm just the messenger. I'm nothing special. But your truth is, Lord, and you have used it to bring transformation in my life, in my thinking, and in my conduct, and the way I interact with the world around me. I pray you would begin to do that same thing here, and that we would see the repercussions of it, Lord, with great influence in this community and the surrounding area. I'm so privileged and thankful to be here. May you bless each one, Lord. May you send them out with your good pleasure. May you bring change and transformation and influence in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.